Welcome to the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are the Retro Talk Network, where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies, even videotape sometimes, too. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, kicked it, watched it, or got mad about it, we're here to talk about it. I'm Ian. I'm Smitty. And I'm Mike. And the other Mike is with us here, too. I am still here. I, they put me on record on videotape. Here I am. <laughs> Sounds just like you. Yeah. This is a videotape that actually responds to you. That's yeah. a whole new thing. It's a whole new technology. whole new concept. Anyway, we got an email and a website, galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com and galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. We're also on Facebook. Visit the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site page on Facebook. Uh, friend us if you are a Facebook fan and join us on our page. Well, guess what? Mike B is here along with Mike Z. Mike B, uh, what's happening? Well, Ian, thanks. It's been an interesting new year. I decided I was going to sell my Japanese tin toy collection. I've posted some stuff on eBay and I started doing a little research. I started acquiring these when I was a little kid and over the years, I filled my shelves up, and then those ended up going into boxes into the garage, and uh, my dear wife, Nancy, decided it was time to liquidate the collection. Now, Japanese tin friction and battery-operated toys were really big in the 50s. Uh, after World War II, Japan, of course, uh, lost the war, as Ian told us in a previous episode, and I read in several history books. But <laughs> they, all the papers, come on. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but uh, they they were really good at making stuff to uh, hurt people and break things. The war machine in Japan ceased to exist, of course, after August and September 1945. Well, they had some very brilliant minds, designers, engineers, creators, craftsmen, and uh, a lot of the out-of-work Japanese engineers went into the toy manufacturing and toy design business. And out of out of their minds came some of the most interesting, I would call them pieces of art, mainly because I'm a toy collector, but these were incredible. And uh, Japanese ingenuity created these as an economy in the late 40s and all the way through the 50s up until the mid-60s. Uh, made in Japan used to be kind of a cliche for something that was cheaply made and didn't last and uh, fell apart, but... Uh, some of these toys uh, now command an upwards two, three, four thousand dollars. And uh, as I say, these Japanese, uh, these toy makers, they would get tin uh, from the war and scrap from America, and they would melt them down and, and refabricate them into toys. And these were everything from dolls to trucks to army vehicles. A lot of them were battery operated. They had very intricate clockwork mechanisms and skip loaders that would lift dirt and go across the room and dump the dirt over in the corner. These awesome pieces. Go onto eBay and type in Japanese friction toy, and you'll see what I mean. There are countless books, dozens of books for the collector's world of Japanese toys, and the battery-operated in particular, uh, they took two D-cell flashlight batteries, and they were incredible. Everything you could think of, airplanes, tanks, dolls that would walk across the room. These are highly collectible, and they have been for years. I had about 200 pieces in my collection, and I've pretty much liquidated almost half of them. And you used to be able to pick them up in the 60s and 70s in yard sales and, and thrift stores for a buck or two, and now uh, I just had a piece of an old Capital Airlines Japanese tin uh, remote-controlled airplane that went for $400. Mm, wow. 
and we talk about collectibles, uh, usually a little bit about collecting in every uh, segment of our show. And these are something, because I bring this up, uh, take a look in your garage or take a look uh, at a local garage sale. And these toys are starting to come out now because the baby boomers uh, no longer want them and no longer need them. And to some degree, a lot of them end up in the trash like a lot of the collectibles we talk about. Ian, did you have a, a favorite toy? You know, Marks was a producer of toys. I, I didn't have any of these Japanese toys, though, and I grew up no. in New Jersey. Well, Marks and Auburn were American-made, American and uh, they eventually uh, sold the production, or they transferred the production over to Japan, much like a lot of uh, American industry is now doing with China and Taiwan, and had the Japanese manufacture the toys. And we're going to post a few of the toys from my collection up on our website, galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. So we were outsourcing even back then. We were outsourcing even then, and we were outsourcing to people who actually could do it better and cheaper. And these toys would sell in department stores and toy shops for $1.98, and it was big business uh, at the time. And I find that some of the biggest buyers of these collections and some of these items are, believe it or not, uh, Japanese people, business people, mm -hmm. who are trying to bring these toys back to the homeland. And uh, even Japanese transistor radios are big collectibles now. So it's kind of a full cycle piece, uh, things that in the 1970s when... When I was in my teenage years, stuff that we'd throw away, we didn't use them anymore, comic books and toys that I had when I was a kid, uh, my mom would, would toss them, throw them away. I moved out in the summer of 71, and a lot of the stuff I had in boxes ended up in the trash can. Mm. If you've got anything out there, listeners, uh, check it out. Send us an email or a picture, and we'll tell you if you've got something, and usually you do. And Mike Z is here with us, and he also talks about the manuals to things. The manuals can be just as valuable, if not more valuable, than the actual item that the manuals represent. And in the world of toy collecting, it doesn't have to be some cast iron thing from the turn of the century. There are toys made in Japan uh, that were patterned after some of the TV series of 1960s and 1970s. Star Trek, uh, The Invaders. And these, some of these are board games. I just uh, brought in before the taping a board game from the Dragnet TV series. It's produced in Japan, and uh, it can fetch two, $300 complete now. Wow. So don't throw anything away. It's all good. It's all valuable. It's all collectible. I know that I had talked to you previously about this, Mike, as far as these tin toys and things. And it's very interesting because if you open them up, sometimes you can actually see... This is a can of sardines, or this is a can oh, yeah. of... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, we've opened these up. I, 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 oh. You know, a lot of these shows have come up, and they've debuted on the History Channel. One of my favorite has been Pawn Stars, uh -huh. and also American Pickers, where they'll go into a barn, and oh, they'll yeah. find some of these toys. <clears throat> and you open those up, and a lot of these were manufactured from orange juice cans. Orange juice cans that came over, we'd fill a, a ship up with them of old scrap tin, tin cans and soup cans and whatnot, ship them over to Japan, they'd peel them apart and reverse them and refabricate them. And if you open one of these toys up, one of my favorite, and we've all seen these uh, probably at antique stores, but the chimpanzees, the battery-operated sure. chimpanzees that, that uh, smash the symbols together, or Charlie the bartender. Well, the smoke that comes out of his ears, right? The smoke that comes out of his ears. Uh, there's a lot of teddy bear battery-operated toys where... They have a teddy bear dressed up like a maid, and, and she irons with an ironing board. And uh, a buddy of... Is she scantily clad? 
a scan. I guess for a teddy bear. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can tell where my mind is. Yeah, you mean, you mean yeah, she's a bear? yeah, and if she, if it's a, you mean she's a bear bear. Yeah, if you're into teddy bears, Ian, you'll have the smoke coming out of your eyes oh. looking at one of these. Uh, but they're interesting because you open them up and they're clockwork. They're fabricated. Some of them were done in little jobber shops behind the the person's uh, backyard. It's much like people in the United States in World War II that had little uh, little jobber shops making parts. And uh, we open them up and it's old tin cans. Wow. But there was a major government recovery in an economy that was destroyed by war. And they came back making uh, jewelry, pottery. They have a, a genre of collectible pottery called Occupied Japan. Right. Very, very valuable. Right. Very valuable in the collector's corners. You've mentioned two things here that were earlier than we thought. You've already said uh, there was outsourcing going on. And, of course, there was recycling going on. So these are two instances of things that started long before we thought they did. Oh, mm-hmm. recycling. Yeah, absolutely. This was uh, just because the wars were over. These shops didn't shut down. There was uh, steel and scrap metal and products and supplies, rubber, and there was no longer a use for it. So they put it to work. Uh, bicycles, toys, radios, furniture. A lot of shops retooled to make things in peacetime. And those things are very, very collectible. Right? On, I saw a kitchen step stool from the 1950s. It's called Kitsch. Mm. Right. Is, is the genre. A step stool will go for $300 in a boutique wow. over here in La Jolla. So keep all of that stuff. And the nice part about the Japanese tin toys is if you're into that and you want to start collecting them, they're readily available. When I started my collection and added collectibles over the 80s and 90s, there was no Internet. So if you were right. lucky enough to find one at an antique show or an antique uh, antique shop, you paid top dollar for it. The price has come down considerably because of the volume. Right. A lot of people bringing them out to market. On the downside of the Japanese friction and the tin toys were, I think uh, emergency rooms were able to add new wings onto their hospitals as a result of the cuts and the injuries from these toys. There were no safety guidelines. There right. were no federal guidelines for toy safety then. And if you got a piece of a Japanese tin toy caught in your finger, you, if you didn't lose the finger, you had a couple of stitches sure. as a souvenir of your childhood. And uh, I remember the Tonka toys, which were pressed steel. They were made in the United States, but uh, those were deadly weapons. I nearly oh, yeah. brained my little brother one night with Dude. one Yikes. A suburban pumper. Oh, boy. But uh, these were toys. Uh, the Japanese toys were meant to be sold and played with and used and thrown away. On the other hand, a lot of the pressed steel toys were built to last. Right. There are a lot yeah. of backyards in America today that still have the old Structo and Tonka toys sitting out in the weeds all rested and, and uh, the wheels gone. But they stood up. Uh, they stood the test of time. Mike, what sorts of things should we look for if we're uh, going to be going into a swap meet, a garage sale, an estate sale, and we see an old, what appears to be an old tin type toy what do we look for what kind of telltale things that we should keep an eye out for well the tip off is you want to look for the, the words on the toy somewhere that will say made in japan okay and each japanese toy maker had a little signet or a little icon or a logo ty was one of them y is a as a maker's mark for a japanese toy uh in the 70s the chinese started doing knockoffs of the Japanese toys because the Japanese toys were becoming so collectible and valuable. So if the toy says made in China, there's a good, uh, there's a 100% chance it is not as collectible as a Japanese toy. You want to see the words either in the lithograph in the paint made in Japan or sometimes it's embossed underneath the car. And cars, trucks, planes, 
tanks, jeeps are up there on the higher scale of, of value than dolls and, and little toys. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of plastic toys, friction toys. The Japanese would release packages of toys. There'd be an ambulance and a taxi cab and a police car and a fire truck all in one little package. So you're looking for the made-in-Japan markings. The holy grail of Japanese toys is collecting is finding something that's in the original box. And, and here's another case where the box can be worth as much, if not more, than the toy inside of it. Uh, for Japanese toys, the high, high collectible ones, battery-operated, the biggest heartbreakers of all is to find a great toy and pop the battery compartment open and see that the batteries have been left in since oh, 1959. Yes. Yeah. It renders the toy almost almost valueless. Right. What, is it? Is the engine burned out? Well, the batteries would leak over the years. Right. Oh, oh they, okay. These were cheap flashlight batteries, and people would put them away and store them, or the family would move, and they'd forget to take the batteries out, and they would leak over the years. And I've had some toys that on eBay on the market today would probably fetch anywhere between 1500 and $2,000 that are worth maybe $70, $80 now. Right. Because the battery compartments, and for that matter, the rest of the car is just corroded. And we talked, if you guys will remember, on a previous show about how to about how to clean up some of that corrosion yes. in the back of a transistor radio. Same thing applies to an old toy. But if the battery has really been in there for a long time and the electrolyte has just run all over the place, that could be a real catastrophe. Yes, and rust is another enemy. Yes, rust. Most of these toys, they were cheap. They were $1.98. <clears throat> No, I don't think anyone bought their kid a toy in 1950 thinking someday this will be very valuable, oh, yeah. so let's take care of it. Yeah. Uh, these toys, and we call it an eBay, toy is in played-with condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were very thin metal tin. They were made cheaply, and a kid, you know, a little three-, four-year-old kid would try to ride a little toy or, or step on it or play with it out in the dirt, and they just didn't have a, a long life. So the ones that survived the 50s and 60s, and to that matter the 70s, that are in good shape, that are straight, don't have any rust or corrosion. They're the top dollar. But I would say any toy you find with Made in Japan that, that looks like it's from the 50s or 60s, check it out. Try and describe it. Type it in the search area on eBay, and you be, might be surprised at what you've got. And don't, like we said on previous shows, don't ever try to clean one of these or restore one. Collectors want these toys the way you found them. Right. They don't want you going in and taking the clockwork apart or trying to fix it and make it go. Uh, you probably blow out the value even worse than than if you had fixed it. Uh, there are people who specialize in repairing and refurbishing and, and uh, completely redoing old toys, just like the Coke machines, and that's their job. And uh, they'll get into them. But uh, they make neat little desk, uh, little shelf models, and I've got a couple of toys that I would never part with because my, my grandmother bought them for me, and I remember them, and... Uh, they're good mementos, and as the baby boomers uh, were taping here, it's the end of December 2010, next week, the baby boomers, the first baby boomers will start getting their Social Security checks. So if you're a baby boomer out there born between 1946 and 1964, you're going to know the kind of toys I'm talking about. Yeah, I think all of us at one time or another when we were little had at least one or two or a few of those Japanese tin toys. Yeah, they were... Uh, uh, they were kind of a keep your mouth shut offering. They usually <laughs> sold them at the at the check stands. Mom, I want a toy. Mom, I want a toy. And for a dollar ninety eight, they could shut the kid up for a while, go home, play with it for the weekend. His cousin comes over for a barbecue. It's squashed. <laughs> or in the case of my family, my brother would take a, a small handle sledgehammer to most of our toys and oh. and mimic head on collisions. I'm guilty of, with a friend, taking two uh, trucks and, and ramming them into each other, trying to get little uh, dents and. Scratches. Well, that, a lot of them wound up that way. That's a good point, too, Smitty, because <laughs> that's why boys' bikes from the 40s and 50s are so much more valuable than the girls' bikes from the same period of time 
Because boys tore their bikes up. We'd modify them. We'd take a hacksaw and cut off some of the bars and make them streamline. The girls, they stayed dainty. They didn't crash them into dumpsters or didn't roll them over or try and modify tires and make them into stingrays. Exactly. Much more valuable. Yeah. We're going to do a special on bicycles, I think, soon. I feel one coming. Do you feel one coming? Yes, I do. Well, uh... More power to you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Could be the jumbo jack from lunch. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, on that note, Mike, thanks a lot for that. That was Thank very you. informative. We really appreciate that. We're going to pause for our retro commercial, and then we'll be back with more. And Ian Rose has a story for us, and we'll be back with that in just a moment. So don't go away. Chuck Wagon, instant dinner for dogs. The right helpings of what dogs like best and need most. We took big, tender, juicy chunks, golden nuggets loaded with vitamins, and rich meat broth. We quick-dried it to make Chuck Wagon what dogs like best and need most. Just add warm water, and it comes back again instantly. Rich meat broth, golden nuggets, and red juicy chunks, big, tender, tempting as ever. Get your dog a complete full course dinner that serves up instantly. Chuck Wagon, next to you, what he likes best and needs most. That's kind of a neat commercial. I actually remember that when I was a kid watching that on TV. I guess it brings back memories of all of us had pets, dogs, cats, birds, fish that are no longer with us, but uh, we, we remember them. Okay, anyway, back to GalaxyMoonbeamNightSight.com, the podcast. And now we're going to turn it over to Ian Rose. When it comes to science fiction, who's your daddy? Ian Rose has an opinion. That's right. I have an opinion. I do not have an answer. Your mileage may vary. Now, you may disagree when it comes down to a choice between Julie and Herbie. Jules, Gabriel Verne, and Herbert George Wells. The question is not who is the better one. The question is... Which one do I prefer and why? And do you really care anyway? Anyway, am I a Francophile or an Anglophile? And does country ID really have anything to do with it? You know, I've read books by both, seen movies based on stories by both. They both have been referred to as the father of science fiction. Before my analysis, some background... Jules Verne, born in 1828, dying in 1905, was a French author who pioneered uh, the science fiction genre. He's best known for novels such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Right now you're hearing the theme to the movie. That was from 1870. The novel, not the movie. Journey to the Center of the Earth, 1864. Around the World in 80 Days, 1873. From the Earth to the Moon and its sequel, All Around the Moon, 1865 and 70. Verne wrote about space and air and underwater before air travel and practical submarines were invented, and before practical means of space travel have been devised either. H.D. Wells, born in 1866, dying in 1946, was an English author now best known for his work in the science fiction genre. He wrote in many other genres, and he knew what the word genre meant, too. His science fiction works include The Time Machine, the Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, The First Men in the Moon. Now, the obvious thing is these two authors have one thing in common, and they both wrote about trips to the moon. Now, back to my original question. Who do I prefer, H.G. Wells or Jules Verne? You can probably guess. Anyway, if you are a Jules Verne fan, or would like to be, 
then you can check out his works at your local library. On the subject of movies, how about Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1954? I saw this just last week, part of my personal collection. The book Creature Features says this movie is, quote, best captures the flavor of Verne and his inventions. The year of the novel is 1868. This is just three years after the U.S. Civil War. But apparently the signing at Appomattox didn't bring enough peace for Captain Nemo. Captain Nemo doesn't believe in peace, but in peace is. He goes around blowing up warships. In other words, as Creature Features explains, he wages war on those who wage war, or maybe he has a childhood complex of breaking things. Anyway, Leonard Molden in his book, The Classic Movie Guide, says this movie is superb Disney fantasy adventure on a grand scale, and it won some Oscars, too. There are memorable action sequences, including that fight with a giant squid. Now, I've seen jumbo size, but this is ridiculous. The squid is huge. It's the size of a house with lots of tentacles and a deadly beak. There's a story that the first time around, they used a mechanical giant squid that looked terrible. No matter, Walt Disney scrapped it. That cost a half a million dollars. They replaced it with a better one, mechanical, of course. Now, you didn't think they could find one that big and train it, did you? It stars James Mason, Peter Lorre, Paul Lucas, and Kirk Douglas. And Kirk really tries to steal the movie. I think he does, actually. Kirk and Peter and Paul and Mary are held captive on Captain Nemo's sub. So Kirk starts using messages in a bottle to get help. And Peter says that messages in a bottle went out with Robinson Crusoe in the previous century. After all, messages in a bottle were old hat. And this was the 19th century. The original novel, of course, predicts the future where submarines eventually do become a reality. But this movie has something new. It shows that Nemo has discovered atomic power. And anti-nuclear activists were gathering on the poop deck. Oh, just kidding. So back to my original question, who do I prefer? Jules Verne to H.G. Wells. In spite of this movie I was just talking about, my choice is... Now, can I have the envelope, please? My choice is... H.G. Wells, and I'll tell you why. Granted, Jules Verne was way ahead of his time. For example, in his story about a trip around the moon, the expedition is launched from Florida, which is where future moon landings would originate from. As good as Verne was, there was some sameness to his science fiction. You know, how deep is the ocean? How high is the sky? He sent us to the depths of the earth, the depths of the seas, out into space. H.G. Wells, on the other hand, seemed to break dimensional barriers with stories like The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Shape of Things to Come. And it took the genius of Wells and Wells, the dueling Wellses, H.G. and Orson, to create a radio broadcast panic like the War of the Worlds in 1938. And by the way, how did those two get along? In October 28th of 1940, H.G. Wells was interviewed by Orson Wells on KTSA in San Antonio, Texas. In the interview, Wells admitted a surprise, that is, Wells the author, at the widespread panic that resulted from the broadcast, but acknowledges debt to Wells for increasing sales of one of the more obscure titles of the book, The War of the Worlds. So what do you know? Orson Wells helped promote the sale of H.G.'s Mars novel. So now you know that I prefer H.G. Wells over Jules Verne. In other words, Wells is my cup of tea. Pardon the pun. And don't call me Old Bean. I'm Ian Rose. Is that all Wells that ends well? <laughs> Very good. Oh, that's excellent. Hey, you even, <laughs> that's you, smooth. You even top me. <laughs>
Uh, any of you guys have any memories of any of those movies? Mike Z? Uh, uh, you Mike know Bragg? What? I was never a big science fiction fan, but I'll bet you Mike Bragg remembers something about these things. On Jules Verne? On either one, H-U-L. Around the World so, in 80 Days. You remember the movie? Jules Verne. True. David Niven? Yes. What about the... Jack Klugman. Jack Klugman was not in that movie. <laughs> okay. What about... <laughs> How about Pinky Lee? Was he in what that about... movie? <laughs> what about The Time Machine? That's one of my all-time favorites. You like that one? Rod Taylor, 1960. Yvette yeah. Mimeo. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and there was also um, Sebastian Cabot and Whit Bissell and uh, a whole bunch of uh, ugly, ugly Morlocks. Yes, the Morlocks. Oh, they were so ugly. H.G. Wells was driving through Texas and stopped at a gas station for directions. There was another guy there filling up. And talk about there are no coincidences. The other guy was Orson Welles. And they ended up chatting, and Orson Welles had just did War of the Worlds, and they were talking about it, and they became friends afterwards, and that's where they uh, initiated that interview. And that, that, that is a verified story. Wow. Didn't know that. Verified. Interesting. Confirmed. So, so they brought themselves together. Uh, fate. Because my, I, my, my thinking was it was somebody at the station brought them no, together. No. H.G. Wells was driving through Texas on his way somewhere. He died in 46, I believe. Yes. And he stopped at a gas station, and it would have to be one of those exact moments in time where another guy was at the gas station filling up, and it was either, aren't you Orson Welles? Aren't you H.G. Wells? It was one of those connections. But they ended up sitting there and talking for about an hour. And that's how they, and wow. they, they became very good friends. And it's interesting that, you know, having done the War of the Worlds on the radio, on the Mercury Theater, Orson Welles had never talked to H.G. Wells. No. no, they never had. Although, remember the time, as I recall... H.G. Wells is upset over that. I thought he was. Yeah, He didn't like how they had translated it to modern day, right? That's right. Yeah. And he, he told his representative in the U.S. who fired off a letter, as I understand, and the letter went nowhere because they much as said, you know, H.G. Uh, Wells had sold his rights. Wow. I think it was to Paramount back in okay. the 20s. So he really didn't have a leg to stand on. Oh, how how about first, first Man in the Moon, 1964? That has to be one of your favorites, Ian. Yes, it was. Okay. I'm getting to know you quite well. Yes. But was that English? It looked. Uh, it had some English people in it. Well, they had an they had an actress in there from the forties, Martha Heyer. Oh, Lionel Jeffries, Peter Finch, and uh, Edward Judd. It was Peter Finch in that? Absolutely. Long before Network. A team of United Nations astronauts planning an upcoming moon mission are both confused and intrigued by a man who claims he, his fiance, and a scientist journeyed to the moon sixty-five years before and were attacked by selenites, mm. grotesque human-like ant forms that live in immense crystal caverns. Grotesque human-like ant forms. Sounds like Al Cajon Boulevard. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was uh, my favorite H.G. Wells. Oh, boy. Interesting. Well, very good. Uh, you give us some good stuff, Ian. But uh, Did I? That was a good one when you do a two-by. H.G. Wells, Jules Verne. Oh, thank you. Uh, what would they have been like had they collaborated? And wrote something. Uh, good questions, considering wow. uh, they, I mean, they, their lives did cross over. Well, H.G. Wells was also known as the man who invented tomorrow. That was his nickname. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, that about does it. Ian, thanks again. Pleasure. Yes. We're all back here, and we're going to wrap up a, yet another episode of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We would like to thank you again for joining us for the last half hour or so. There's more episodes to come this year, and if you're feel free to download... The episodes we've done in the past, we've got uh, nearly 40 of them now. And we're very proud of our first year in existence. In the second year, we're going to have some even more exciting and fun stuff, some more adventures. And, of course, the uh, Quill Ink writing nomenclature of Sir Ian the Rose. Yes. 
<laughs> Thanks again, Ian. Always good stuff on your end of, of the broadcast booth. I'd like to thank you again, Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. You can reach us at our website, galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. We love the emails, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. Become our friend. Will you please be our friend? Our Facebook page is Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. Who would have guessed? Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on Facebook. We're building a lot of friends there. We'd like you to become one. Uh, download our shows. Pass them around. We build this show on word of mouth, just like every other successful production. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. I'm Ian. And we'll see you back soon. Mike Z. The unusually not... quiet Mike Z. Well, you're the last letter of the alphabet. Mm. Well, that's you know, true. It's the mm. normal linear unfolding of things. Mike Z is our good friend of Saturday Night Sock Hop, and I always want to mention him before we go. He's done a masterful job of bringing Oldies Radio back to San Diego, where it belongs on KCBQ, and hopefully it'll stay there. Uh, join Mike Z on Saturday Night Sock Hop on Saturday nights from 9 to 11 on KCBQ 1170 AM, or you can download each and every one of his shows at his website, SaturdayNightSockHop.com. Until next time, thanks again. <laughs>